about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, is this how you act as a king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote a letter in Ahab's name placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them testify that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. When the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, Uh, Sorry, then the word came down. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now at Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. You uh, You have not murdered a man and seized his property. Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dog, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, So you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. I am going to bring disaster on you. I will consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. 
I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Basha, son of Ahijah, because you have provoked me to anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols, like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the day of his, of his son. Well, good evening. My name's Roger. I'm one of the ministers here. Great to be with you as we think about that passage in 1 Kings chapter 21. Please keep that open because we're going to follow that story through. Now, I think we live in a compassionate age, an age where you see kind of trigger warnings uh, before articles, where you're made to think about what's just about to be said, where we need to be nuanced in our thinking and in the way that we approach things, particular, particularly on social media. And often alongside that, of course, comes the anxiety of, are we being too judgmental? Are we being judged? What how can we be more compassionate to one another? In our compassionate culture, the pronouncement that something is sinful well, sounds not very compassionate. It, it sounds pretty judgmental, actually. It sounds like I'm saying, I'm better than you because I don't commit the sins that you do. I don't tell white lies like you, so I'm better than you. I don't live with my boyfriend, therefore I'm better than you. I don't drink too much, therefore I'm better than you. I know how to care for people, therefore I'm better than you. Of course, the irony is that that's moralism. And the Bible calls moralism sinful, that notion that we think of ourselves as better than other people. And of course, it's important to show compassion to one another, to think carefully about the way we speak and what we say and to warn people of what we're, we're, we're engaging in. All of that is actually worthy of our attention. But what if we lose some important resources in our desire to be compassionate? What if we lose some wisdom if we're failing to pay attention to the things that are true and important? What if examining the way we exercise our private choices is one of the ways we can come to a moral self-knowledge? What if calling you and me sinful is actually one of the most inclusive statements you can make. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
We're all in the same boat. It's the great leveller of all humankind. What if being compassionate means that we fail to see just how damaging sin is, how death-producing it is, how it's a petulant disobedience against a holy God? What if we allow ourselves to acknowledge the pervasiveness of sin and start to make sense of this, of evil in our world, where sin comes from, how it's nurtured, how to recognise it in our own lives and how we go about sinning, how to combat our sinfulness and therefore how to be truly compassionate towards one another. What if the acknowledgement of our own sinfulness in our own hearts gives us the opportunity to grow in wisdom and self-knowledge and understanding of what God can do with us? Well, as we come to 1 Kings chapter 21, we've been following the journey of Elijah. We're not going to concentrate so much on Elijah this evening, But what we are going to do is to think about the dynamics of sin. We're going to think about how sin works and what happens and how it influences us and changes us. Now, as we come to this passage, first of all, we have the occasion. Uh, What is actually taking place here? Uh, As we've been uh, reading through 1 Kings, a whole lot of events have been taking place. There's been a three-year drought And the prophets of Baal have been defeated. Ahab normally lives in Samaria, but he retires to a place called Jezreel. Now in Jezreel, he's built a beautiful palace. Um, And it's it's a palace overlooking the Jordan Valley. It's sort of like a retreat, a place where he gets some respite. And as he retires there, he looks over and sees his neighbour, Naboth. You might like to follow along the story in 1 Kings 21 and we're up to verse 2. And as he looks over to his neighbour's place, he sees a vineyard. And he says to himself, I'd like a veggie patch. And so he proceeds to ask Naboth, if he can obtain his land. He says to Naboth, I'll actually give you a better piece of land and perhaps even a better vineyard. I'll actually make sure the exchange is worth your while. Now, I'm not exactly sure what's going on here. Some people have sort of described why does a veggie patch and a vineyard, why are we talking about those two kinds of things? Some people have suggested vineyards kind of represent God's generosity and kindness towards the people of Israel and veggie patches represent their time in Egypt. I'm not quite sure about that, but something's going on here and clearly Ahab wants to grow veggies. Now, from Naboth's point of view, this seems like an ideal situation. He has the opportunity to ingratiate himself towards the king. He can sell his property and get a better property. And in the future, the king may continue to treat him really well. But that's not what happens on this occasion. Notice what happens in verse 3. Naboth says something really interesting. 
He says, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. And what's so interesting about this is the way that Naboth goes about saying that he will not sell his land to the king. Notice what he says there. The Lord forbid. We've heard a little bit earlier on that there are 7,000 people who are worshipping God. And Nabal sounds like he's going to be one of the guys who's worshipping God because he's referring to the Lord. But he's saying the Lord forbid. And what he's referring to is a law in Leviticus and Numbers which talks about the land that you've been given by God is your land and your inheritance from God for, to be passed on to future generations. And so he's saying, I'm holding on to the land that God has given me to pass on to my future generations because that's what God has called me to do. And I'm going to be obedient. Now, of course, neighbor is taking really great risks at this point because the king wants his land. But what he's saying is, I want to be obedient to God. I want to live God's way. I want to do things God's way. And I'm not going to sell you the land. Well, at this point, Ahab has a moment to kind of navigate life. He's presented with an opportunity to think about what is his next step. And of course, we're all faced like, with moments like this, aren't we? Uh, moments where we call to make a decision about which way to go and what is the right thing to do. Ahab has a number of possibilities here. He could uh, let Nabal continue on his land or he could take Nabal's land. Elijah has been preaching to Ahab for many years, so he's fully aware of what uh, Nabal is doing in terms of holding on to his land. But he has a choice. So the question is, what happens when we're confronted with that kind of choice? Jonathan Edwards suggests that when we're confronted with this kind of choice, our heart's desire is usually what determines what we do next. He put it this way, we are free to choose the way forward, free to choose that which we most desire. So how we move next is determined by our desire. We're dragged into things by our desire. Now, it's very important to understand that because in our world, where we're in our compassionate age, we tend to make allowances for the way we behave. And we tend to suggest that there are forces beyond us that have shaped us, and so therefore the decisions we make are a result of those forces, and we really don't have any other choice. And yet we know intuitively, actually, that's not true, is it? I mean, for example, that terrible massacre that has happened in Sutherland Springs in Texas was committed by a sane man, and so are most massacres. People are in charge of their behaviour and how they respond. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that we shouldn't be compassionate and we shouldn't understand that we are shaped by many different forces and some people have particularly difficult lives and that the choices before us are sometimes particularly difficult. I'm not suggesting that at all. 
but we are free to choose what we most desire. For example, if your boss comes to you at work and says, I want you to lie, I want you to lie on my behalf, you're you're confronted with a choice, aren't you? What's your heart's desire? You might say in your own head, well, if I don't lie, I'm going to lose my job. Therefore, I want to have my boss's approval. Therefore, I will lie. There's your heart's desire. But what if your heart's desire was different and you said, I actually choose not to lie. I believe in not lying. And therefore, my heart's desire is to be obedient to God. And yes, that may cost me my job. You see how difficult it can get? I'm not saying it's easy. But your heart's desire will lead you in the direction of the decision that you make. What about the circumstances where you come home from a hard day at work and you know that porn is one click away? Do you deal with your heart's desire there? Or when you start to gossip as, as kind of an expression of letting off steam and it gets further and further into slander. Or perhaps it's greed. You want something more and more and more. And so therefore your desire overrules. Ahab is free to choose what he desires. Now, see his reaction there in verse 4? He goes home and he throws a tantrum. <laughs> It's quite remarkable, really. He's the king. And he goes home and he sulks, comes sullen and angry, goes to bed, refuses to eat. He sounds like a two-year-old. But you can see what's happening with his heart's desire. He wants that block of land. He wants the veggie patch. And so... He sulks when he can't have his veggie patch, when he can't have what he wants. And look, just as an aside, I actually think our emotions are very useful in helping us identify what we most desire. Um, If you get angry, sometimes it's worth asking, what am I angry about? What's so important to me that I'm choosing to get angry at this point? What am I being blocked from having What is my desire here? And is it a desire that's leading me in the wrong direction? Or if you're fearful or worried, what's so important to me? What is my desire here? What is driving me in this direction? Or if you're kind of despondent or perhaps even hating yourself or even sullen on the bed, what's actually happening? What desire is taking place here? What is it that I'm reaching out for and that I don't have? And it's worth thinking about your emotions and the way they work at this point because it gives us a clue to what our desires are and helps us understand them better. Sadly, once our desires are activated, what often then happens is we are further enticed to express our desires. Usually someone comes along Um, and helps us with the desire. Or perhaps we tell ourselves a story um, and we make excuses for the way we're just about to behave. Or perhaps we find people to hang out with who encourage us to move a certain direction. Well, that's what happens with Ahab. 
Look what happens next. His wife turns up, Jezebel. We've met Jezebel before. She's not a very pleasant character. And she says to him, why are you so sullen? Why won't you come and have tea with me? Why aren't you coming out of the bedroom? And he answers, well, Naboth, the guy next door, has a parcel of land and I want it for a veggie patch. I want my desire to be met. And Jezebel just simply says, okay, well, you're the king, aren't you? This is ridiculous. Come on, get out of bed, start eating. This is madness. We'll make sure it happens. Desire enticed. And so he lets her carry out his desire. Now as he starts, as this desire is enticed, we start to see plans are conceived. This desire is conceived into actually concrete action. And we see letters are written in Ahab's name with his seal on it in verse 8. And they invite Naboth to have a prominent seat. But there's a plan here, a plan here to ensure that Ahab gets the land. And effectively what happens is they plan for Naboth's death. They ensure that people at this gathering start to bring charges against him. And the result is that this desire is birthed into sin. And he's murdered. Naboth's murdered for his land. This is the way the story has unfolded. And what we see is in the birth of sin, we actually see death. Now, you might notice that I've used this in a particular way and framed this story in a particular way. And it's because James speaks of the dynamics of sin in this way. It says, Each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. And that's exactly what's taken place here in 1 Kings 21. That's exactly as how things have unfolded. These are the dynamics of sin. Now you might say, well, not every sin ends in death. You'd be right, but sin actually takes away life, doesn't it? If you think about pornography and the oppression and the degradation it brings, the way it breaks down relationships... You think of the way that gossip happens and the way it diminishes others and steals kindness and grace away from people. How lying diminishes truth. How greed diminishes generosity. How we see death in those forms. And so sin leads to death. But you can see the dynamics there, can't you? You can see how it starts to unfold in a person's life. Now, unsurprisingly, this is the Bible, there's judgment. And there's repentance. 
But in both these things, as we see this story unfold, there's a twist. First of all, we come to the pronouncement of God's judgment. Clearly, Ahab has done the wrong thing. Jezebel has done the wrong thing. And Elijah is sent in, in verse 17. He goes down to meet King Ahab and he pronounces God's judgment on Ahab. When Ahab sees him, see there in verse 20, he says, So you have found me my enemy. Ahab and Elijah have had a very bad relationship all the way along. But at this particular point, this is the low point. Because Ahab calls Elijah his enemy. It's like saying, God's messenger to me, God's words to me are my enemy. God is my enemy. Well, Elijah then pronounces God's judgment and he tells him he's going to wipe Ahab's descendants off the face of the earth in very unpleasant ways. Ahab hears these words in verse 27 and he tears his clothes and puts on sackcloth and he fasts and he lays in sackcloth. And here are the two twists. The first one is to do with judgment. What happens next is quite surprising. God says, well, I'm not actually going to judge Ahab. I'm going to judge Ahab's descendants. I'm going to actually have mercy on Ahab. Now, that sounds really weird to our ears because we're used to the idea that if you commit a crime, you pay for it yourself. Now, of course, in some societies uh, where people are much more family-orientated, the idea that someone commits a crime and the family pays for it makes much more sense. But even, even if you take that into account, it just seems rather odd that God would pass his judgment on to the future of Ahab's children, for example. Now, I'm not entirely sure what's going on here, to be honest. I don't know that I can explain why God is merciful at this point to Ahab. It seems a little bit odd. And yet, I have difficulty trying to explain God's mercy at the best of time. Because he's been merciful to me. And there's really no explanation for that. Why would God be merciful to me? I don't deserve it. And yet he has been. He's shown me his mercy in Jesus Christ by sending his son to die in my place. And he's offered me mercy. So while I'm not completely sure what's going on here, I accept that God will show mercy to whom he shows mercy. Because I'm surprised by his mercy. So that's one twist, but there's a second twist, and it's to do with repentance. You notice Ahab has repented, he's torn his clothing, he's made a big sign of his repentance. And yet if you look in the very next chapter, 
It seems like a kind of false repentance because in the very next chapter what happens is there's another incident which another prophet comes to speak to him about and he completely ignores the word of God. In this incident, he's completely ignored the word of God. In the next one, he completely ignores the word of God. So has he really repented? I think what's gone on here is something that we often do when it comes to repentance. And that is, we repent, we say we're sorry because we fear the consequences. You've probably all seen this happen. You know, uh, there's a kid um, with a biscuit jar and, um, you know, they've got the hand in the biscuit jar and the parent comes along and says, you're not allowed to eat those biscuits And the child says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry, I'm really, really sorry, I won't do that again. And yet it happens again. Now what's happening there? Of course the child is being caught and doesn't want to suffer the consequences. They're not actually genuinely sorry for stealing the biscuit. And frequently I think that's the way we can come to repentance. We can fear the consequences, the fear of being caught of being embarrassed by our own actions, of the judgment that will come. And so we repent in order to make that all better. And yet that's not really true repentance. That doesn't actually change the desires of our heart. Thomas Chalmers, um, an American Puritan, I think had some insight here. Not an American one, a Scottish one, in fact. Had some insight here, which I think is helpful. He says, if our desires for something are going to be overcome, they need to be replaced by a greater, more powerful affection. By a greater, more powerful desire. And we see that happen, actually, in King David. Some of you will be familiar with his story. He's a man who sees another person's husband killed because he's committed adultery with Bathsheba. And yet he repents too. And in Psalm 51, we hear a true repentance. He recognises the desire that has been driving him. He recognises the sinfulness of his own heart. He comes to terms with it and he says... Listen to these words. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. And listen to this. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You see, there's the replacement Lift my eyes from the desire that I have and from my own sinfulness and restore me to the absolute joy of what you have done for me. To the joy of your salvation, of your mercy, of your kindness, of your grace towards me. And I can't do this by myself. So grant me a spirit that will sustain me. Lift your eyes away from those desires that lead you astray 
and let them be replaced by the joy of salvation. As we look at this passage, it's worth considering just how we can see that. Consider Naboth for a moment. He's something of a picture of Jesus. He was falsely accused and executed, though he was innocent. In the end, Naboth's cause was vindicated. It was vindicated because Jesus too was innocent. His death brought about in a similar fashion, but instead of just judgment alone, Jesus' death brought forgiveness and salvation. And by his death, he gives us a real and true inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. And that is the joy of our salvation. What he has done for us and what he's doing for us and what he will do for us. So in light of that, I invite you this evening, as you consider the desires of your own heart, the things that drag you away, the way that you're enticed, the way that it gives birth to sin, the way it gives birth to death, to come before our great God and say to him, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Please don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. But please, please restore the joy of my salvation and grant me a willing spirit so that I might be sustained. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.